21 years, I might make 22 And I don't mind dying but for the love of you And if fate should break my stride Then I'll give you my Vincent to ride That was the Del McCory Band playing 1952 Vincent Black Lightning. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Born in 1939 in York County, Pennsylvania, Del McCory is a bluegrass legend. His music has defined authenticity for hardcore bluegrass fans. But Dell also serves as a bridge between the original generation of bluegrass performers and today's contemporary musicians. He's played with bluegrass legend Bill Monroe and the rock band Fish. He's headlined at the Grand Old Opry and at Bonnaroo. Since 1987, he's fronted the Del McCory Band, which features his sons, Ronnie and Robbie. In 2003, Dell received his eighth International Bluegrass Music Association Entertainer of the Year Award and was invited to become a member of the Grand Old Opry. Well, this year, 2010, Del McCory was named a National Heritage Fellow, the highest honor the country bestows on a folk or traditional artist. I spoke to Del McCory when he performed at the Gray Fox Bluegrass Festival earlier this summer. I began our conversation by asking him how a kid growing up in the 1950s fell in love with bluegrass rather than rock and roll. It's crazy, isn't it? Well, you know, I had I heard Earl. It must have been 1950 when I heard Earl, and I would have been 11 years old. And and he just about ruined me for life when he when I heard Earl Scruggs, you know. But my brother already taught me to play guitar, you know, and then he bought this record of Flat and Scruggs and. And uh, I don't know, when I heard that, when I heard Earl play, you know, something that that I just never heard before. I probably had at a younger age, but you have to be a certain age, really, for things to click, I think, you know, in your brain. <laughs> and, buddy, he clicked hard in my brain, you know. <laughs> but And then when I was in high school, all the kids, you know, they were listening to Elvis Presley because he was the biggest thing going, man. He... He had those hot records, you know, and, <laughs> and but, you know, I was already into banjo and listening to Earl Scruggs, and then, of course, I found other guys, you know, that were good, too, like Don Reno, who had a different style completely from Earl, you know, but, and, and a lot of young ones are coming up, too, that, at that time, like J.D. Crow and uh, and Sonny Osborne, who, who were in my age group, you know, but they were just a little older than me, like a year. Now, this was Pennsylvania. It was. I lived in, yes, lived in PA. Well, Baltimore's an old stomping ground for you, it isn't is. it? It is. You used to play in Baltimore. A lot. I'll tell you, back in the, well, let's see, late 50s, yeah. The late 50s and the early 60s, I played in Baltimore. It was it was really a, a good town for bluegrass, and I, I'm not sure why, but it really was. It was... The first band, the first bluegrass band to play Carnegie Hall was playing a little bar there in Baltimore. And they were a good band, Earl Taylor and the Stony Mountain Boys, you know. I, I didn't go to Baltimore for until I was grown and, and uh, kind of independent, you know. And it was the biggest city closest, you know, close to home. 
And uh, of course, you know, young people always want to go to the big city, you know. <laughs> when did you first pick up a banjo? Well, let's see now. I would have picked up the banjo. I heard Earl in 1950, and I think it was soon after that when I started playing. Uh, my dad, he knew a guy had one, and he borrowed it from this guy. It was an old Vega, an old cheap one, you know. And that's what I learned to play on. And then when I got out of high school and I was working and I could buy things, you know, I bought uh, a brand new one, a, a brand new Gibson. It was an RB150, they called them. And so I played that and and then I, I traded down in Baltimore. There's this great banjo player in Baltimore, Walter Hensley. He was the guy I was telling you about the first one to play Carnegie Hall. And this was before Bill Monroe, Flatten Scruggs, or any of them. Those guys played Carnegie Hall, and it tore the place up, it said, you know. <laughs> but they said they were awful nervous. <laughs> but he had he had this old Gibson, and I went in there one time to the club where he was playing, and he wasn't playing this old Gibson. It was a great banjo. So I asked him where it was at. I said, I'd like to have that thing. He said, you want that thing? And I said, yeah. And so it was at a pawn shop downtown. <laughs> and I took my new banjo in there and traded it for that old one, you know. And so I played it till I quit. I played it with Bill Monroe when I first played with him, my first date with him. But uh, when I quit playing banjo, I started playing guitar and singing lead for him. And, and I never did seriously go back to playing banjo, you know. Now, how did you meet Bill Monroe? There was an, a guy that played uh, guitar with Bill and sang lead for about three years or four years. His name is Jack Cook. He just passed away recently. But he, he had played with Bill and quit and moved to Washington, D.C. And then he got his own band, and I was with one of his first banjo players then. And so Bill Monroe came. Uh, he knew Jack was in Baltimore, so he on his way to New York City, he stopped there to see if Jack would go with him to play this date because he didn't have a lead singer. And uh, so Jack said, well, do you have a, a banjo player? And he said, no. And so they took me along with him, you know, and that's how I met Bill Monroe and played banjo, and he offered me a job. But then when I decided to take a job, he said, you know, I still need a, a guitar player and a lead singer worse than anything else. He wanted me to try that. Was it hard to make the switch from banjo to guitar? Well, actually, the first thing I learned to play was guitar when I was real young, like nine. <laughs> and I really never did seriously play guitar after that, you know. But I thought, you know, I know what it's supposed to sound like. So I'm going to work at this. And the thing that I wondered about was, uh, could I play with Bill Monroe, guitar, rhythm? Because I knew I knew he had great rhythm, you know, and, and uh, I didn't want to mess the band up. But I found out it was easy playing with him because he must have had the same timing I did. I didn't have any trouble at all playing with Bill Monroe, you know. And, and he never told me a thing about my guitar playing. Never did. How important is timing when you're a musician? I mean, I'm sure there are musicians you admire, would love to play with, but it is difficult <laughs> because timing doesn't always work. Yeah, you know, in my opinion, it's the most important thing. And I've played with some guys that had bad timing, and I cannot play with them. 
I absolutely cannot play with somebody that has bad timing, you know. If they drag or speed or 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 do both. <laughs> I just can't play with them. So that's it, you know. <laughs> and and I found out that I could play with him, you know, his uh, but not everybody has really good time. I think it's something up here that some people have and some people don't. Or can it also be not even good or bad timing, but you're on a different wavelength. The timing is just different between two musicians, perhaps, and it doesn't work. That could be, you know. I think uh, I've heard I've heard guys say they play in the middle of the beat, you know, and I can't play with somebody that plays in the middle of the beat. I can if they play on top of the beat, you know. I can I can play with them, but otherwise I cannot. It's kind of like a drive, you know. Bluegrass has that, and and it's hard to play with drummers because most drummers will be behind the beat or in the middle of the beat, you know. That's it, I think. Some people have a different timing, you know. Most most of your good bluegrass bands play right on top of the beat without speeding, you know. Now, if they start speeding, you'll you'll notice it right away, you know, too. <laughs> but you know, playing on top of the beat, no matter what speed it is. It can be really fast or it can be slow, but uh, on top of the beach where it's at, you know, I think. <laughs> it's either there or nothing. <laughs> you were with Bill Monroe and you were one of the bluegrass boys. Yes. <laughs> Did I get this right? Did he invent the term bluegrass? Well, I tell you what, his band, he was from Kentucky and... Uh, Somebody gave him that name. He had the Bluegrass Boys, you know. He had uh, always had, his band was called the Bluegrass Boys. But I can remember when they didn't call his music Bluegrass. I remember when they somehow, somebody started calling it Bluegrass Music, you know. And, uh, And he didn't. He didn't start that himself, you know. But, uh. By the 60s, then, they started having bluegrass festivals, you know, and, and that kind of established that name then, you know. But but it, sometime in the late 50s before they ever called it bluegrass, really. Now, how long were you with Bill? I was only there a year. I played a year and uh, quit and got married and moved to California. <laughs> when did you record your first album? I think I recorded my first album in 67. Uh, what was that like? Well, you know, I I had wanted to do that, you know, didn't know how to go about it. And I, I played in uh, Berkeley, California with Bill in in 63. And this guy that was uh, that booked Bill there, his name is Chris Strockwitz, and he has our Hooli Records. He, uh, he heard me sing with Bill, and he told me, uh, I want to record you, you know. And I thought, boy, this is great, you know, I'll get my own record. <laughs> and so he did. And that, that helped me get started, too, you know. He was mainly, I think mostly he booked uh, or he recorded Cajun music. But I was the first bluegrass band that he, that he uh, put on his label, you know. And, and so uh, I was fortunate. That was my first record. And the second one was Rounder, uh, Rounder folks. They were just starting their label, and they wanted me to record for them. And that was my second record then, you know. And then I recorded for a whole bunch of independent labels all through the years, you know. <laughs> but in the meantime, you also had a day job. I did, yeah, I did. I worked a day job until uh, 
maybe the middle eighties. And what were you doing? Uh, mostly cut timber, working in the woods, cutting trees, you know. Uh, I did a lot of other things. I worked construction, worked on a, uh, they were building a nuclear plant. That's hard physical labor. Yeah. Plus, you're it raising is. a family. Yeah. <laughs> and then you were playing bluegrass. It's true, you know. I grew up on a farm, so I was always used to, you know, physical work, hard physical work. And, and I, I think I liked it. I know I did. Uh, and cutting timber was the same thing, you know. It's a lot of physical work to that. And I was in really good shape then. I could hold notes forever. <laughs> you know, just hold them out there, which you can't do now. <laughs> but I did that, and of course my wife, she did too. She, Jean, she'd work, you know. She couldn't hold her down, man. She's just like, she's one of those people, you know, that just go, go, go. And uh, she can't sit down, you know. <laughs> so what happened in the mid-'80s that allowed you just to, to do music, to devote yourself to that? I'll tell you, the, the kids... They were grown, and and I think they were all through school. By, yeah, they were. They were all through school by then. And so we, we kind of become independent, me and her, you know. And we decided, well, you know what, let's go to Nashville because uh, my booking agent was there then, and, and there was tel- there's a lot of TV in Nashville then. And so we thought, well, we'll go down there. And, and we were in... in good enough financial shape where we could just buy a house, go down and buy one and keep the old house. And we still have it. It's still sitting there. <laughs> uh, but we thought, well, if things don't work out, we'll sell the house and go back to PA. We've got that one still there, you know. And, and so we never did leave, though, because things things just started getting better. So that move to Nashville really good regenerated move. your career. Yeah, it sure did. We, uh, let's see, we, we had a booking agent when we moved there. Then when we moved, I knew Ricky Skaggs from a time, from when he was about 15, you know. I got to know Ricky. And and he was really doing well at that time when, when I moved down. He's actually one of the people that kind of persuaded me to move. Ricky wanted me to record for his label. He started his own music label. And I was the first one he talked to about recording for it. And I recorded for Ricky's label. I think I recorded two or three records on that label. Well, what happened, we did this down from the mountain tour. Uh, I had recorded a record with Steve Earle. And we did like 30 days in here on, with that tour, you know, that record. And then we went to Europe and did 30 days. While we were on that tour, we got a lot of offers from different record labels. Because of that tour, I think, and there was a lot of bluegrass on it, my manager told me that we met with 10 different labels in Nashville because of this, you know. They wanted to record us. And so in the wind-up, my manager, he said, have you ever thought about starting your own label because this would be the time? (laughs) So we talked it over, and we thought, well, we'll do that. So that's what we did, and, and I've had my own label since then, you know. And your two sons joined the band. When did that happen? Oh, my. They they joined Ronnie. Well, now, that, that's a funny story. He Back when he was just a kid, he was probably 13, I don't know, 12, 13, 14. I played uh, in New York City. They had a show there, and Bill Monroe was booked on it, and I was booked on it. I went up there and played, and Ronnie was on vacation from school. It was that time of the year, you know, like uh, between Christmas and New Year's. 
So he went with me up there, I took him along. He was just a kid, you know. And I got up there and Bill Monroe took a liking to him. He'd take his hat off, put it on Ronnie, and, and he put his mandolin, I saw him do this. He put his mandolin in his hands. He said, now, there, you play me something. <laughs> so Ronnie didn't know a thing about a mandolin, you know. <laughs> but he had played violin in school, and that did it. We got back home, and I had an old mandolin at home. Then he started playing with me. He played a summer with me, just play rhythm. He never took no breaks or anything. He knew the chords, and he could play. His rhythm was good. And so I just take him along and let him play the festivals that summer, you know, and, and uh, play rhythm well. That fall, I had this tour coming up in Europe. It was like 30 days, you know. We played just about every day. But anyway... Well, he was asking me and his mom about going on that tour, you know. And I said, no, you got to stay here and go to school. <laughs> so he came home from school one day, and he said, Dad, uh, the principal wants to talk to you. And I, I told him you're going to Europe, and I want to go with you, and, and he wants to talk to you about that. And I thought, well, this won't do no good, but I'll go talk to him. We were talking, you know, and after a while, the principal said, you know, I'm going to let Ronnie go. He said, he'll learn more on that trip than... He would here in school, and I won't make, I won't have him make up his work either, you know. And I thought, oh no, I gotta take his kid with me now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's bad enough, you know, <laughs> going overseas. <laughs> oh, but we took him along, you know. <laughs> but he learned so fast, you know. Kids learn so fast, especially if they get in a, a band where there are professionals, you know, that they can carry him along you know <laughs> and he never let up since then you know he <laughs> and your other son Robbie decided was, to join the family business too he sure did you know he when he was about eight I think it was he was trying to play the banjo you know because I had it laying around I didn't play it I never did make them play anything or rehearse or practice or nothing you know they just kind of did it on their own you know and and, and so i if I'd hear him doing something and I know now there's one note you're missing right there and I'd show him that note and so it wasn't long till he he was playing that banjo pretty good and playing with the records but they listened to other music too they listened to Leonard Skinner and old southern rock bands you know in those days well it's so <laughs> funny you should bring that up because that's just where I'm going oh really yes Del McCoury at Bonnaroo Oh, no kidding. <laughs> well, I don't know how we got there, but we did. <laughs> At my old age, I've been a rock star. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, now, we owe that to Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie said, now, you know, they started this Bonnaroo, you know, first year, I think it was. And Ronnie told our manager, he said, now, Stan, we should be, we should be on that show, you know. And what did your manager say when he said that? <laughs> he was just kind of... I think he was kind of, uh, what would you say? Uh, stunned. Yeah, stunned, you're right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it surprised us. There's a lot of bluegrass fans there. There really was. Uh, so Ronnie was right. Yeah, he was. You know, he's got great instincts. Well, you've performed at a concert with Fish. Not exactly what you would think of as a likely pairing, but one that worked. <laughs> yeah, it did, you know. <laughs> well, what happened, they did a song of mine on a live record, and, and after they did that, they called and wondered if we'd come play their festival up there on the lake in, in Oswego there. And so we said, yeah, we'd love to. So we 
we went up there and played, and man, I couldn't believe the people. There's seventy-seven thousand people. They said at that one, and and I got there, and uh, Trey, the the leader, kind of the leader of the band, you know, he said, "What well, what do you think we could sing together?" And I said, "Man, I have no idea." <laughs> he he knew we could sing the one that he recorded my song. We could do that, and he said, uh, "Do you know Blue and Lonesome?" And boy, that shocked me. And I said. You mean you know that song? And that was, uh, that's really hardcore bluegrass, you know. That was Bill Monroe and Hank Williams. Old Hank wrote that song, you know, and the first to record it was Bill. And he'd done his homework. He knew that song, and he knew some more uh, hardcore bluegrass songs. So we went out there, and and we could have done a whole show, just the two of us, you know, doing those, those kind of things. It surprised me. What do you think accounts for the just exploding popularity of bluegrass personified by you, in fact? You know, I'm not sure. It, it, it's always had its uh, plateaus or it'd go up, you know, in popularity and it, popularity and just stay there for a while. And uh, I know the formation of our International Bluegrass Music Association helped you know, it gave it a big boost then because we got organized for a change, you know. Now we have a place where everybody can get together like promoters and record companies and musicians and managers and everything, you know. And and before, it seemed like it was just quibbling and all, you know. But now they work together. And there's also, I would think, the outreach you do by recording other people. I'm thinking about, you know, Richard Thompson's songs. Yeah. You never know where you're going to find a good song, you know. <laughs> and there, there's a story about that song. A friend of mine uh, was in New York City. We're I talking think, about 1952, Vincent Black's Lightning? That's right, the, the Black Lightning song. Well, he heard this song on the radio, and, and uh, I'd never heard it before, and he told... He, he sent word, he said, you ought to record that song. It just so happened we were doing a record. And uh, he sent a tape of it. And so, you know, I said, I like that story. It's a great story. So we worked it up in the key that would suit me, you know, and all like that, and, and kind of arranged it. But I like that song, and, and you know, uh, it's funny. I never know what I'm going to like till I hear it. And people ask me what I'm looking for, you know, when I record, and I don't know. Till I hear it, you know. <laughs> Tell me, what do you like best about performing? Well, you know, I never do have a program, you know, so I just do requests when I go out. Uh, after I get the band introduced, you know, I let them do one thing that they do, whatever it is, sing or play. And after that, I like to do some new songs, but, but after we get... Everybody introduced, you know, I'll ask for requests, and, and I, I like to do that because the people, you know, it gives them a chance to be part of the show, I think, if you do their requests, you know. And as long as they request something you've recorded, you're okay, you know. Now, if they request somebody else's songs, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but they do, you know. <laughs> and I'll just do all request shows most of the time. I try to put a new song in somewhere. You know, I slip it in on them. <laughs> now, the band earned membership in the legendary Grand Old Opry. That's true. Yeah, 2003. That must have been a thrill. It was, you know, because I'd listened to it since I was just a kid, you know, and... and 
and it was such a big show in my mind, you know. Well, it is a long-running radio show. It really is. It's the longest-running, I think. When you found out that you were a National Heritage Fellow, what went through your mind? Wow, that was that was another highlight of my life, I'll tell you. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I don't know if I deserve that. Really, that's, that's really something, you know. I mean, uh, to play the Opry, I thought, you know, I could probably be an Opry member someday, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I probably wasn't near as surprised to become a member of the Opry because it was something I kind of th- thought I could achieve but but being a an NEA member I, I don't I just didn't never thought I could do that you know or would do that would become a recipient <laughs> I'll put it that way <laughs> and I was really excited and of course Jean was too I'm sure she didn't show it much but she was boy and I, everybody in my camp though I was just kidding about Jean but but my manager, you know, and, and the booking agent and everybody, the boys, you know, they were all excited for me. And, and it's it's really a big thing, you know. It really is. And so wonderfully deserved, Del. Well, my thank you. many, many congratulations. All right. Thank you for that, yes. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was 2010 National Heritage Fellow Del McCory talking about his 50-year career playing bluegrass music. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from 1952, Vincent Black Lightning, from the album, Dell and the Boys, performed by the Del McCory Band, used courtesy of McCory Music, Inc. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. Next week, traditional Irish flute music and sprightly conversation with 2010 National Heritage Fellow Mike Rafferty. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Shotgun blast hit his chest, left nothing inside. Come down, Red Molly, to his dying bedside. When she came to the hospital, there wasn't much left. He was running out of road.